This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Lynn Hartnett, and this is New Books Network. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Vladimir Alexandrov, the author of the recently published To Break Russia's Chains, Boris Savinkov and his wars against the Tsar and the Bolsheviks. Vladimir, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Lynn. Glad to be here. Awesome. Um, first of all, let me start by saying this is a, a fascinating book that is a real page turner. Um, it reads like a spy novel or a thriller, but at the same time, you manage to convey some of the most pivotal moments in late Tsarist and early Soviet history. So I'm really looking forward to diving into the book with you. But before we do, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional journey. Sure. Um, I did my graduate degree uh, in comparative literature at Princeton with a focus on Russian literature. And then I taught uh, Russian literature for many years and Russian culture related to the literature at Harvard and then mostly at Yale. Uh, Then a turning point uh, occurred about a dozen years ago when I stumbled across a detail that fascinated me, a reference to a black man in Russia around 1910-1915. I was so struck by how unlikely this was since I knew that there were very few black people of any kind in the Russian Empire, whether from Africa directly, the Caribbean, or the Americas, that I decided to pursue this, which resulted in a historical biography of the man, a book called The Black Russian. And that intrigued me as a process, trying to understand somebody from the past And so I switched gears, basically. I abandoned the kind of uh, literary exegesis and uh, literary theoretical uh, work that I was doing, which was satisfying, but not as appealing as the new stuff I found. And I decided to do another uh, historical biography, a figure who'd fascinated me for a very long time, uh, Buddy Savinkov. I first heard of him in connection with Bailey's classic novel, Petersburg. I never quite understood the Savinkov connection fully. And when I finished the biography of the Black Russian, I launched into Savinkov. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Well, I actually have to say I, I read the Black Russian and not only did I read it, I assigned it to my uh, my students in my class and I loved that. But it, it's funny that you mention it be, because there couldn't be two more different characters in so many ways, although the time and that they occupied in the space that they traveled in overlaps in many ways. Uh, the Black Russian, it seemed to me that it was 
a real um, labor of love in terms of how you were able to put together information about this man's life where so little, so, so few sources uh, existed. And that's strikingly different from Savinkov. Absolutely. Uh, the Black Russian uh, was simply a, a, an intriguing, mysterious uh, sort of little historical detail uh, that I needed to uh, pursue to satisfy myself. And I was lucky that this man left a paper trail because he kept getting into trouble later on <laughs> in his life when he left Russia and wound up in, in Constantinople. So there turned out to be really quite voluminous records of a certain sort about him that allowed me to reconstruct the external events in his life and to make some inferences about his internal um, state of mind, his emotional state, his views on things. But there was a lot about him that I was not able to find out, that I would have liked to find out. With Savinkov, it was quite the opposite because he was an important historical figure and there are entire libraries full of information about him to say nothing of unmanageably huge uh, quantities of materials in archives in Russia, most of which have not been digested uh, mm. because Savinkov has not received the kind of attention that I think he deserves given his role in Russian history. But the motivation in both cases was to understand the man as much as possible, but in the case of Savinkov, to understand what made him tick internally as well. So the books were very different in some regards, but similar in others. And then, of course, there's also the fascinating matter of trying to get a hold of how it is that an individual responds, responds to the forces of history and in the case of Savinkov, actually tries to push back and direct historical forces. That dynamic uh, continues to fascinate me and is actually a very different kind of inquiry from what I did when I was reading great works of Russian literature and trying to make sense of them. So uh, I continue to like this kind of historical biographical analysis, and I'm going to continue in the same vein. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, maybe diving into a little bit later what, uh, what that next project may be. So, so let me ask you this. So you, you just described to us what drove, what, uh, what prompted you to tackle Savinkov. Um, let's dive into what made Savinkov tick, if you found that out or not, and, and uh, what type of revolutionary Savinkov was, because I think that's a fundamental reason why so few people outside of the field, uh, those who don't study Russian history or literature, uh, may be familiar with him. Savinkov is difficult to summarize briefly because he was a complex and contradictory character. Um, he became a terrorist, a word that's mm -hmm. obviously very loaded now, but he was a very different kind of terrorist from what we see going around going on in the world around us because he was a highly moral one which is itself paradoxical and i can describe briefly what i mean by that at some point um he was a very loyal uh, member of his team of revolutionary terrorists but uh he fell victim to uh betrayal by one of uh, his closest allies 
Um, he was a very willful man, but he was also a man who felt constrained by legalities. Uh, it's really a very difficult thing to summarize him neatly, but if I had to um, describe him in just a few words, um, I would actually allude here to what uh, a Russian revolutionary whom you know very well, Vera Figner, because you wrote her biography, said about Savinkov. I think it was probably the most perceptive uh, thing about Savinkov anyone ever said and catches a lot of him. She said that he was stupidly honest. <laughs> and what that means is that Savinkov lived according to certain principles, despite the bloody career as a terrorist that he pursued. Uh, one, of it, one of the principles was loyalty. The other was honor. And this was something that both empowered him and made him into a very weak competitor in the political scrum in Russia in the first two decades of the 20th century. Um, for example, his entire terrorist organization was betrayed by its own leader, a man by the name of Yevno Azef. People usually think that Rasputin is the most lurid figure in late imperial Russian history. I think Azef could easily be seen as a competitor for that title because he was simultaneously the head of the terrorist organization and an agent of the police, and it was also ultimately prosecuting his own agenda, which did not satisfy either the terrorists or the imperial police. Mm -hmm. He betrayed Savinkov and Savinkov's ilk repeatedly, and when presented with all kinds of evidence about Azef's betrayals, Savinkov could not bring himself to believe the evidence. Why? And Fignet is the one who put her finger on it because Savinkov thought that honor and loyalty were cardinal virtues and he could not imagine that somebody who had been a close ally of his did not have them. Mm. That's mm. one example. Um, I can give another if you think it would be useful. Uh, sure, why don't you? Just uh, from another really important moment in Russian history in which Savinkov was involved, the um, Kornilov uh, Metyezh, as it's called in Russian, or the Kornilov Putsch, or the uh, Kornilov Affair in um, the summer of 1917, uh, Savinkov was a great admirer of the senior general and basically wanted to have him become a kind of a dictator figure in the provisional government. Um, he thought that this is the only man who could save Russia because Russia's armies were collapsing in the war with the Germans and the government run by Kerensky, the prime minister, was very weak. So his admiration for the man was total. But uh, in the end, he uh, betrayed him. Why did he betray him? Because he felt that he owed a debt of loyalty that honor demanded he uphold to the government in which he was an acting minister of war. Uh, in other words, rather than choose the pragmatic path of supporting somebody who could have created potentially a very strong military regime that might have saved Russia's uh, armies during the uh, last stages of the war with, with Germany, he felt obligated to live up to the oath that he had sworn to the provisional government. Uh, he, he just couldn't 
bend his imagination sufficiently to somehow embrace deception or perfidy in those times in his life. Well, it, you know, it's amazing when you describe the Cornelia Love Affair. Uh, I think, first of all, you your book does one of the best jobs of describing that really um, pivotal moment in August of 1917 uh, of many works that I've read. Um, and it just signifies so one of what I found to be many what if moments in your book. There just seem to be so many of those points in time where one decision, um, one different decision by one of the people involved, whether it was Savinkov or one of the people that he was associated with or trying to plead with or trying to make a deal with. Uh, if one other decision had been made, the, the scope of Russian history would have been um, much different. Um, as a historian, I am anxious to to get to that period, uh, but I feel most comfortable working from the beginning forward. And so I wonder if, first of all, you could tell us uh, a little bit about the party to which uh, Savinkov belonged, the Socialist Revolutionaries, his role in it. And then I, I think one of the other, um, before we get into Azef, the, one of the other issues that speaks to the what seems to be this oxymoron of this moral terrorist is the uh, events surrounding the attempted first the attempted assassination of Grand Duke Sergei, um, and then his ultimate assassination. So, I wonder if you first could tell us a little bit about the SRs and um, how Savinkov became attracted to this party, and then the role he played within the organization. Sure, um, it's important, I think, to understand Savinkov that he was attracted. Uh, specifically to the terrorist arm of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. But the party as a whole uh, differed from the Marxist Bolsheviks in uh, eschewing a Marxist view of history and historical development. The SRs did not believe in class warfare, and they uh, would welcome into their fold anybody from any class, as long as that individual would subscribe to the SR platform, which was a populism and socialism. Uh, Russia, as you know, had a population that was some 80% peasant at this time, the beginning of the 20th century, the late imperial period. And the SRs made the peasantry and their needs for land uh, the central platform of their campaign. They didn't approach the issue of revolution from the point of view of the proletariat laboring masses, which was the Bolshevik Marxist fixation. So the SRs were more realistic in terms of what a revolution in Russia should entail, because Russia industrially was behind Western Europe and the United States, and an emphasis on the workers was simply misplaced. Um, there was also a romantic streak, I think, that played a role in this. Mm. The idea of agitating slowly among the peasants or among the workers whom the socialist revolutionaries did not ignore um, was one way to try to prepare the ground for revolution, but it was slow and tedious. Um, there was a dimension of um, flash and dash to Savinkov's character, and he and other young men were riveted by the stories of heroic assassinations of leading figures in the imperial regime by dedicated individuals, uh, whether that was in the 19th century with the People's Will Party or with the resurrection of that mode of revolutionary action at the very beginning of the 20th 
with the combat organization of the Socialist Revolutionary Party. So when Savinkov was in uh, exile in Vologda uh, in 1903, a representative of that older revolutionary movement from the 19th century recruited him to the Socialist Revolutionary Party, and he immediately decided that he would try to become one of those heroic terrorists who single-handedly would be able to damage the imperial regime and the people's faith in it by uh, assassinating leading figures who supported that tyrannical regime. So he didn't bother trying to be, as it were, um, a run-of-the-mill socialist revolutionary, but um, immediately went for this elite uh, terrorist branch. It's also worth mentioning here that prior to 1917, the most popular and populous um, radical revolutionary party in Russia was, of course, the Socialist Revolutionaries, far more numerous and influential at the time than the Bolsheviks were. Right. Okay. Oh, that's that's very good. Um, uh, so tell us a little bit about, uh, was Savinkov directly involved in some of the assassination attempts and terrorist acts that the SRs plotted? Was uh, Could you tell a little bit uh, about the uh, the dynamics of it for the listeners. Sure. Uh, it's a very curious uh, fact that this possibly most notorious of all Russian revolutionary terrorists never actually killed anybody himself during the revolutionary plots that he orchestrated. Mm. He was the leader of small terrorist cells. Now, contemporaries and naysayers of various kinds uh, try to claim that Savinkov never killed anybody because he was a coward. But the um, evidence is overwhelmingly um, uh, convincing about the fact that he was certainly not afraid to die. He was practical in terms of realizing that his particular skill, as it turned out to be, was organizing uh, these events and not actually throwing the bombs himself. But let's bracket that for the for the moment, and I can briefly describe what he did in relation to Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich, which also returns us to the issue of the morality of the kind of terror that he paradoxically practiced with his, with his fellows. So Grand Duke Sergei was a reviled figure for various reasons, a senior member of the hated Romanov clan, and he was targeted with the governor's general of several other big cities in late 1904. Savinkov eagerly took on the task of leading a small team of maybe four or five people to assassinate Sergei in Moscow, which they succeeded in doing in 1905 um, in a way that leads directly to a demonstration of uh, the morality at play in it. Savinkov's close ally, uh, uh, Ivan Kalyaev, a childhood friend, was one of the designated bomb throwers. And the terrorists had, no, had figured out that the Grand Duke would be leaving the Kremlin for a performance at the Bolshoi Theater not far away, and they knew what route he would have to take given the buildings and the configurations of the spaces. So Ivan Kalyaev could see from a distance the distinctive white acetylene lights that were unique to the Grand Duke's carriage, beginning to approach. Kalyaev had been waiting for this moment for months. He began to run across the space in front of the old Duma building in Moscow, now the historical museum, to intercept the carriage on its way 
to uh, the Bolshoi Theater, he ran up to the carriage close enough to be able to glimpse what was inside. He saw the Grand Duke, but he also saw that there was a woman sitting next to him and two children opposite. And he stopped as abruptly as if he'd hit a brick wall and let his arm drop. He couldn't bring himself to throw a bomb at this hated figure because there would be, as it is now put, cynically collateral damage. Uh, It was the Grand Duke's wife and their adopted children who were in the coach with him. And so Kalyaev stood there watching the carriage roll off into the distance. It was striking that there were no guards watching uh, the carriage or accompanying the carriage, and nobody in the coach, neither the driver nor the Grand Duke, saw that a man had run up close enough to glimpse inside, to glance inside. So then uh, Savinkov, in the meantime, was waiting in the Alexandrov Garden, uh, which is um, in the Alexander, sorry, garden, which is along the wall of the Kremlin, some 100 meters away. And when Kalyaev came to Savinkov to consult, you know, very upset and trembling about what had just happened to him, Savinkov said, no, you're right. It would have been immoral to uh, throw the bomb if it would have killed the woman and the children. So that, in a nutshell, is the way in which the SR combat organization operated. They always went to great lengths to minimize or to eliminate hurting bystanders. If they were trying to throw a bomb at a carriage in a street that was crowded, they would put it off or they would wait until there was a lull in the traffic. Another aspect of the paradoxical morality of their actions is that they agonized over what they did. Mm. Ivan um, uh, Kalyaev was a deeply introspective young man. He wrote poetry. He never got over uh, the fact that he had had to take somebody else's life to advance the altruistic cause for which he lived, which was to free the Russian people. Um, Dora Brilliant, um, a young Jewish woman who was the technician in this particular team of terrorists, who, in the sense that she's the one who fashioned the bombs that were used, also could never get over the sense of guilt or sin that was involved in killing someone to advance the common good. And Savinkov also uh, was deeply shocked by these events, even though he wasn't the one who threw the bomb and would then wind up remembering uh, his moral quandary about both the necessity of having to take a life and the criminal nature of the act. Uh, So this is all quite different, of course, if we return briefly to the Marxist Bolsheviks and especially to Lenin's ruthlessness, since there was no uh, barrier to uh, the desired end that he would not cross. He was the consummate pragmatist. But Savinkov was an idealist in that regard. Oh, I think that's that's such a good way to describe it. And it's in your book too. It's Savinkov comes across as this in so many ways. This this almost you know tragic and heroic and sad and sometimes misguided figure. But there are all these other secondary characters whose lives intersect with Savinkov's in these really powerful ways. And Kalyaev's uh, interaction with 
both Savinkov um, after the uh, the would be assassination, and then uh, with uh, the Grand Duke's widow after the fact is one of those moments where I think you really capture the the angst that these people felt in terms of deciding to do what they did um, in in their life. One of the uh, some of the relationships that I really identified with. Um, were the women in Savinkov's life? I, you know, as a mother of myself, the uh, his poor mother. Oh, you know, it just broke my heart what this poor woman went through. Um, but then she was uh, her sufferings in terms of Savinkov were were later mirrored by um, Savinkov's wives and other women in his lives uh, in his life. But I, I wonder if you could just speak briefly uh, that personal element of of. Um, uh, the subject of your biography about the the people in his life who mattered to him, um, you know, I, I would say Azov also was one of those who clearly mattered uh, a great deal, and then his betrayal seemed to be a real um, psychic disruption for uh, Savinkov. Yeah, now Azov's betrayal was a devastating blow uh, for Savinkov and for the entire Socialist Revolutionary Party and the combat organization, which actually never recovered after that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, It was a serious blow to the party as a whole, to the prestige of the party. And um, it mattered so much to Savinkov because he was very loyal. Um, He was loyal to his comrades in arms. He remembered to his dying day, uh, Ivan Kalyaev, then a man by the name of Sazonov, who was the bomb thrower in another successful assassination Dora Brilliant, the uh, young woman involved in the assassination of Sergei, also occupied a very unique place in uh, Savinkov's psyche for the rest of his life. Um, His mother, um, other people who are close to him, Savinkov yearned for a family life. Uh, He married young. He married uh, the daughter of a famous Russian writer, uh, Uspensky. Um, he had two children with this woman. And even though he was always on the run from the police and had to live below the radar, or he was abroad um, hoping to return to Russia to carry out some other attack, he always tried to stay in touch uh, with her, with Vera and the children. He supported them financially uh, for pretty much his entire life, even when that marriage fell apart which was hardly surprising uh, given that he spent most of his time away from his wife and children. He still continued to support them. Um, He had three important relationships with women that I know about. Um, The first is the one I just mentioned. Then when that marriage fell apart, he had a common law marriage with another woman with whom he had a child. And at the very end of his life, uh, he had a kind of um, a serious mistress who was his companion during his final years and months. And um, my reading of his relationships with them, various letters have survived, uh, very sort of intimate expressions by him and by them of how they felt about each other, convinced me that Savinkov was... Um, in a very straightforward and sort of old-fashioned way, uh, a deeply loyal uh, man toward his women, despite the fact that affairs fell apart. There's, one can find in the literature about Savinkov 
kind of facile claims that he was uh, a womanizer. Now, for a biographer, that's a fascinating thing to read. Uh, I had no problem at all in accepting that he could have been a womanizer, except I couldn't find any evidence of it. Uh, People who made this claim about him, both contemporaries and later on, would either not provide any evidence that could be checked at all, or would provide evidence that didn't contain what they said it did. So uh, given what I was able to learn about Savinkov from what he wrote and said and how he acted and what people said about him, you know, I concluded that this was simply one of the kinds of things that people said about him that really um, is not borne out by the historical record. Um, so loyalty toward women, toward comrades, towards friends was very important for him and uh, guided him at various times. And when a betrayal occurred of some sort, or when he discovered that his marriage with Vera was not working any longer and that he was suddenly and very powerfully attracted to another woman, he agonized over it. Mm. Uh, There are records of that. He was in Paris, for example, when his marriage is falling apart, and uh, he was friends with Zinia Dagipius and Dmitry Mirishkovsky, so the sort of the big Russian literary power couple of the time, very important writers. Uh, Zinaida was not a very sentimental woman, ultimately, and she got sick and tired of witnessing Boris Savinkov's agonizing over what he's going to do because his marriage with Vera is falling apart and he's falling in love with Evgenia Zilberberg. So um, that's just a little bit of some kind of samples of him and his personal relations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. That's wonderful. I, I did. I felt drawn into uh, finding out the, the dynamics of these relationships as I was reading the book. Um, one thing you just mentioned uh, was that Savinkov was in Paris during this time. And I think what some people might be surprised to discover in a book about a Russian revolutionary is that so much of his story does take place abroad. Um, he spent so much time in exile uh, in European exile, and he crosses so many borders so frequently in a way that we would find surprising uh, for those of us who think about uh, border control and immigrations in the latter part of the 20th century. Um, but I'm wondering if how you think his time in in emigration as an emigre played into his relationship with Russia, his perspective on Russia, and his uh, ultimate actions uh, after the Russian Revolution of 1917? I think he was miserable as an exile. I mean, he loved Paris. His French was completely fluent. Uh, He knew Paris very well. It was like his second favorite city. Moscow was his first. Although he grew up in Warsaw, Moscow was the place that he felt most attached to because it was the most Russian of the great Russian cities. He felt miserable in exile because he was out of the action. He wasn't actually trying to do something in Russia. 
Uh, he was all, frequently very hard up. Uh, he tried to make money with his pen for the most part, or though there was a period also when the Socialist Revolutionary Party simply was rich enough to be able to support people like him when they were living in Western Europe. But he couldn't wait to get back. Um, and when, uh, for example, the Great War began in the summer of 1914, uh, Savinkov completely changed his entire outlook uh, politically because although he had been, up until that point, uh, a violent opponent of the imperial regime, and there were other plots that he was involved in that we haven't talked about that indicate that he continued to want to overthrow the imperial regime, even though he wasn't in a position in Russia to do it much, to do to do anything along those lines himself. As soon as the war began, he became a Russian patriot. He was one of those who said that it is immoral for us now to talk about trying to overthrow the imperial regime, because what we need to do now is to ensure that Russia survives the war. He hated German militarism. He feared what would happen to Russia if Russia lost the war to Germany. And so he became a correspondent for Russian newspapers on the Western Front. And they are uh, his correspondences. He wrote over 100 short pieces, and he traveled along the front everywhere from uh, you know, the English Channel to Switzerland, uh, getting very close to the actual gunfire. Uh, it, it's all 100% pro the Entente, Russia, Great Britain, <clears throat> and France, uh, against German militarism and for Russia. Um, I take these reports of his, even though they were written during wartime for publication under censorship in Russia, pretty much at face value. Mm. There are things in his reports that obviously are encoded messages uh, regarding the supposed harmony between the upper and lower ranks in the British army uh, and things like that. I'm sure he realized what a hierarchical society Britain was and how that did not fit with his general sort of populist view of a future Russian society. But nonetheless, I think it shows what his values really were. He was a Russian nationalist, uh, but not a Russian chauvinist. Mm. And he thought that the ideal form of government for Russia would be uh, a socialist uh, democratic republic, which is what he believed he was fighting for all of his life. And then as soon as the Russian Empire fell in February of, of the imperial regime fell in February of 1917, the only thing he could think of doing was to get back. And he did. He got back shortly after the February collapse of the imperial regime and immediately launched himself into the war effort. Because by then, as you know, Russia was doing very badly in the war. Uh, the, the, her armies were not succeeding. Uh, there were desertions. The Bolshevik agitation was beginning to work effectively to undermine the war effort at the front and behind the lines. And Savinkov dedicated the rest of his life during the provisional government period of Russian history to trying to get the Russians to fight and win the war to preserve themselves as a nation. Right. 
right? And it seems like at some points he uh, he came close to having some uh, influence that would have changed the the course of history. One one of the points that you write about this period that I found so um, poignant was you said overnight the revolution had transformed Sabankov and thousands of Russian exiles yeah. from political pariahs into long lost sons and daughters of a motherland that yearns to welcome them home. Um, and I just found that um, really moving from the perspective of uh, the exiles who clamored to return home um, and those who uh, welcomed them with the uh, idea that something new could be being born in Russia in the spring and summer of 1917, something that turned out not to, um, to, to be quite different than many expected. Um, but can you give us a little sense of, um, in many ways, Savinkov had an insider's view of these tumultuous events, especially as spring gave way to summer and summer into fall in 1917, of um, how he saw things unfolding as one revolution passed to the second in 1917 uh, from his insider's perspective. Well, one thing that is uh, central here is Savinkov's um, fear and loathing of the Bolsheviks. I think he had a good sense of how uh, ruthlessly pragmatic Lenin in particular was. And since Savinkov was a very principled individual, uh, this is something that he feared, uh, the Bolsheviks' ruthlessness. You, you know that they made several attempts in 1917 prior to October-November to seize power. So Savinkov wasn't surprised by this. He also was, um, in a sense, alerted about the harm that the Bolsheviks could do to Russia when he was a commissar on the Russian front. He was a political officer for a, a number of months whose job it was to keep the large military formations to which he was attached fighting against the Germans. The Bolsheviks, by contrast, sent agitators into the army or had sympathizers in the army who did everything they could to undermine the will of the Russian soldier to fight. So uh, Savinkov saw the kind of effect that the Bolsheviks were having. They were pushing in a direction completely opposite to the one that he wanted. He wanted Russia to win the war against Germany. The Bolsheviks argued that the Russians shouldn't be fighting the war at all. The peasant soldiers didn't have Um, any stake in the war, and that uh, they should withdraw from it. And as you know, they did that shortly after they took power. They left the war through the Brest-Litovsk peace treaty. At any rate, uh, when Savinkov caught the eye of um, Alexander Kerensky, who was the leading figure in the provisional government and became the prime minister, chief minister, uh, Kerensky gave him a job. In the government, he made him, in effect, the minister of war. Although his actual title was acting, because uh, Kerensky preserved the actual portfolio for himself. And Savinkov uh, tried to persuade Kerensky and other members of the regime to do something about the Bolsheviks. In July of 1917, when they made an attempt to seize power, which failed. He, the Bolsheviks were arrested. He wanted more arrests. He didn't want the Bolshevik leaders to be released. Uh, he tried to persuade Kerensky in particular to reinstate the death penalty at the front, uh, which was something that the provisional government canceled almost as soon as it came into existence. 
in uh, February of 1917. And this despite the fact that every fighting army at the time, whether for good or for ill, had the death penalty at the front as a means of trying to keep discipline under control. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kerensky waffled uh, back and forth on this. Uh, The matter gets complicated, but basically Savinka used every opportunity he could to advance the cause of bolstering the Russian army so that it could fight to victory. And after uh, February of 1917, in other words, when he was in the Russian government, the provisional government, he began to fear not only that the Germans would occupy Russia if they won, but also that they would do everything to dismantle the freedoms that the February Revolution had won for the Russian people. He saw them as being reactionary politically as well. So that was an additional reason of why he wanted to keep the Russians fighting, both to preserve the country and to preserve the gains of the revolution. And, you know, in retrospect, it may seem that Savinka failed in all of the grand uh, plans that he had when he tried to push Kerensky into a more uh, martial stance during the war. But from the perspective of somebody on the ground at the time, the historical situation was extremely confusing and fluid. You know, now in retrospect, it seems that Savinkov uh, made mistakes, uh, failed to capitalize on moments that presented themselves to him. But when you were in the middle of all of that, all you could do was push in a particular direction in the hope that you would prevail. And I think it was a matter of bad luck, at least in some regards, and also of his character in other important ways that prevented what he wanted to see happen from happening. Mm. His character was his destiny. And he wasn't ruthless enough, for example, in terms of what he might have been able to do when he was in power, Um, such as when he, in effect, betrayed the man he admired most, General Karnilov, what I alluded to uh, a few minutes ago. Right. And, and and in the same way, it seemed to me that this was one of those moments where Savinkov's honesty came into play again. I, I mean, I, I was as I was reading this part of your book, um, I kept wishing that, Karen, you know, as Kerensky was telling Savinkov what he thought he wanted to hear and actually wasn't following through on it, that somehow something would change. But um, uh, I, I, Savinkov's just, I, I, he seemed to be trusting maybe perhaps he had no other choice at the at the moment but his trust once again um came to um sad consequences shall we say yeah i mean i mean it's it's an absurd situation but in what was it i guess uh late august of um 1917 savinkov was briefly the military governor of saint petersburg just for a few <laughs> days and he actually although he still revered Karnilov, had to, given the position he had in the city, also condemn Karnilov as a rebel. Because from the point of view of the government in which Savinkov was a functioning figure, uh, Karnilov was a rebel. 
What Savinkov could have done, of course, is decided to join Kornilov and to show some initiative, in which case Russian history would have been entirely different. I'm pretty sure of it. It's, but anyway, it's, um, it's, you know, counterfactual history is always fun to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It was fun. Uh, it was very fun. Well, um, so as we know, um, um, the Kerensky government does fall in October or November of 1917, depending on what calendar we choose to use. And uh, Savinkov once again finds himself out of the country. Um, and for a time, uh, working with some of the leaders of the White Army to overthrow uh, the Bolsheviks. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it was in, in this period of time that I once again really felt the intensity of Kerensky's Russian patriotism. Um, and oh, seven cups, you mean? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, sorry. Seven cups, <laughs> uh, Russian, uh, his patriotism. Um, in terms of opportunities that he pursued, in, in terms of working with those who might push back against the Bolsheviks um, in ways that didn't materialize. But this was another one of those those moments where uh, the what ifs abounded. Yeah, he, he actually, as soon as the Bolshevik coup d'etat occurred, he tried to orchestrate opposition, uh, running around wildly trying to get anybody in charge of any military formation to intervene. It was a time when uh, a very small number of disciplined troops could have simply put an end to uh, the coup d'etat that uh, Lenin orchestrated. It didn't work. Uh, Savinko found out that certain white generals, as they were becoming known, were organizing in the south of Russia. He tried to join him them because they were the only force that was beginning to resist the Bolsheviks militarily, they wouldn't have him because they wouldn't forgive him his betrayal of General Kornilov. A lot of them were proto, proto or openly monarchist. They didn't like dealing with a former uh, potential regicide, revolutionary. So he went off on his own. He raised his own small army in Moscow. He was interested in helping the French who said that they were going to fo- uh, organize an invasion of the Bolshevik state from the north. Um, when that private army of his uh, failed to achieve its ends, he joined um, uh, the Russian um, government and army of uh, Admiral Kolchak in Siberia for a while. That army tried to get rid of him by sending him to Paris because they also didn't want to deal with a former revolutionary terrorist. And in Paris, Savinka for a long period of time tried to do whatever he could together with other exiles to advance the cause of Russia during the Paris Peace Conference when the war was finally concluded in uh, November of 1918. Um, And then he would latch on to any opportunity that he could possibly find to try to advance his cause, which became to uh, destroy the Bolsheviks, who he saw as destroying uh, Russia. And, you know, the Bolsheviks made no secret of their interest in trying to export their revolution Uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, Russia as uh, such was not that important to Lenin. It was simply the place where the revolution began. Mm -hmm. But then it had to move further uh, to the West, you know, to Poland and and Western Europe. So Savinkov tried to alert the Western powers, the victorious French and British um, in particular, to the dangers of the Bolsheviks. 
and he managed to get um, Winston Churchill's ear, who understood the peril that the Bolsheviks uh, were to Western uh, values that they represented. Uh, Savinkov went to Poland in 1920, which became independent finally after the uh, Bolshevik, after the Russian Revolution, and organized an anti-Bolshevik army there under uh, Polish control. Um, he he would he even in getting ahead of uh, the time period a little bit, but when Mussolini began to rise to power in Italy, part of his platform was anti-Bolshevism. And Savinkov sought out his assistance. This was at a time when the fascism that Mussolini espoused uh, was a far cry from what it became later. And Mussolini attracted attention from all kinds of people, uh, including uh, President Roosevelt in the United States and other uh, democratic leaders. This was uh, a long time before um, fascism showed its uh, true colors uh, in Germany and so on. There was no stone that Savinkov left unturned in his attempt to find assistance to uh, fight the Bolsheviks who he saw as destroying Russia. Well, I have to say, when I was reading and I stumbled across his relationships with both Churchill and Mussolini, my head was spinning a bit. I didn't expect uh, to find them um, wander into your book in uh, in this way. And so that was a a very fun and pleasant surprise. Um, uh, I don't want to ruin the end of the book for those who are following this through like uh, the thriller that it is in many ways. But um, I do want to ask you just a couple of more questions about um, the end of Savinkov's, uh, I guess, life uh, in general. Um, One thing that I found so ironic is that um, when Savinkov does decide to return to what's now the Soviet Union, um, it once again is the result of a betrayal. It's another betrayal, essentially, that um, has him make his way back to Moscow. But I, I wonder, as someone who has lived with Savinkov for as long as you have and delved into his psyche and what makes him tick, do you think he could have done otherwise? Um, no. And I think he was playing a complicated game at that point. Um, he vacillated in his own mind and in what he said to people about whether or not there was a trap laid for him and that he would fall into it. Mm. I think he was trying to gain... There's no doubt that the Soviets wanted to capture Savinkov and eliminate him. He had become a really serious thorn in their side um, in the period, say, 1920 through 1924, uh, all kinds of things that he was trying to do uh, bothered them a great deal. He was a violent opponent. So they did lay a trap for him. The question is, did he fall into the trap or did he walk into the trap? Mm. And my sense is, again, without giving away the details, is that he um, was trying to game the system. But his view about whether the trap was one that he would fall into or one that he could succeed in using to his own ends, his view of which of these alternatives was the more likely varied. He wasn't entirely sure that he could game the system, 
But he was quite sure, I think, that he was not simply going to fall into the trap. So that led him to concoct, um, that's the wrong word, it's kind of a pejorative, to develop a plot that might have worked. It was a big gamble on his part about whether or not he would succeed. But if his plot did succeed, then he might have finally struck a really serious blow against the Bolsheviks. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of cat and mouse maneuvering that happens with Savinkov and the Bolsheviks at the end uh, of his life. I think it makes uh, a pretty, for a pretty interesting story. Um, I also enjoyed a lot reading very carefully the transcript of the enormous show trial that was put on with Savinkov as the star figure very early in the Soviet system of show trials. Because if you cross-reference the information in the trial with things from uh, Savinkov's life before, it seems clear that there was a lot going on below the surface that was never made public. So uh, all of that is uh, part of what made it so fascinating to try to unravel the end of Savinkov's life and to figure out uh, whether or not uh, he committed suicide or whether he was killed. Uh, because as soon as his death was announced in 1925, uh, speculation ran wild. And, you know, even in sort of more recent years, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous dissident Nobel laureate, on the one hand, and Varlam Shalamov, on the other, the famous chronicler of the Gulag, both had spent time in the Gulag and both reported what various former secret policemen said on their deathbeds about Savinkov's final moments. So this continued to be part of what became the legend of Buddy Savinkov um, in um, the Soviet Union and which persists to this day. Uh, if you Google Boris Savinkov, revolutionary, revolutionary in Cyrillic on the Russian search engine Yandex, you get millions of hits. <laughs> uh, he's still very much a preoccupation for uh, Russians who approach him with very varying degrees of sympathy or antipathy, and of course, enormously varying uh, degrees of knowing anything for real about him. But he's certainly a subject of fascination, which is why I think he's become a legendary figure in Russia now. Well, having read your book, I, I, I have to, I can see why that's the case. I've long been fascinated with Savinkov myself um, because of his re, uh, relationship with Vera Figner, uh, because of my interest in Russian revolutionary terrorists, uh, having read his memoirs. Um, but your book has opened up a whole new area of both his life and this period of Russian history. And for that, I am grateful. Um, and I cannot recommend it uh, enough to anyone who's interested in good biography or in this period of Russian history. So um, thank you. I appreciate that. Your efforts well, thank in you, Lynn. Uh, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Oh, I, well, I enjoyed having you. But I have to ask, I promised this at the beginning. Um, do you have another project lined up that you're working on? Actually, I do, and I'm uh, very much uh, enjoying the early stages of research, but it's a very different kind of project, although it still has some of the same features that attracted me. It's about the involvement of the Russians in the American Civil War. 
Uh, it actually was quite significant. I can just give you a taste of that by quoting what the Secretary of State under Lincoln said about them. He said, thank God for the Russians. <laughs> for an American Secretary of State to say that in uh, 1863 is quite something. So I'm having a lot of uh, fun in the early stages of research here. And it's not going to be just a kind of an historical overview. I want to get into the personal reactions of specific Americans, both leading figures and smaller figures who played a role in this, um, get their views on how this all played out. So um, it's a very enjoyable project. Well, I will look forward to seeing that when it is finally published. Um, but <laughs> but for, for now, I would just like to say thank you so much for, for joining me. It was truly a great pleasure to talk to you and hear a little bit more about To Break Russia's Chains. Thanks a lot, Lynn.